think of Hairspray, you think of Catch Me If You Can, you think of Smash, and then this? Like, how did this even happen? And then he was able to take the new skills he learned and bless us with High School Musical 2 and 3. The key changes that happen, like everything that is going on instrumentally, I'm obsessed with. And that Broadway just can't, it just can't let go. It can't let go, let go. Hi everyone, and welcome back to Off to Broadway, the podcast where we deep dive into anything and everything musical theater from the comfort of my car. I'm Tara. I'm Stefania. And in today's episode, we are back with another composer series, and this time we are talking about Mark Shaman and Scott Whitman. Now, when you hear those two names, only one of them is actually a composer, so we are kind of breaking our own rules here. But you can't talk about Shaman and Whitman without talking about Whitman. So they are, they're a team. They write, they write their cast their uh, scores together. So even though it's Mark Shaman writing the music itself and they collaborate on the lyrics, mm-hmm. um, unless I don't think I'm wrong, but their their Broadway success has always been together, together. As, as composers. Yes. The only thing that I would say is different is that obviously Mark Shaman has had film score success where Scott Whitman has not been a part of that film score success. No, he's done more... His the other side of his career is more directing, um, mm-hmm. and Mark Shaman's is film scoring and some concerts and stuff. And then when they come yeah. together to write musicals, typically adaptations of yes movies. <laughs> exactly. So this episode sort of came to be because on our last episode, if you guys remember, my obsession was Rogers the musical written by Mark Shaman and Scott Whitman. Slaps. I can do this all. Um, exactly. Yeah, we got it. So we were like, well, let's dive into their career because we've done Smash episodes. But Mm -hmm. looking at um, their Broadway life, I'm shocked that they have only done a few shows because I feel they are such a staple in the industry. And it was surprising to me that it was only a few that had been on Broadway. Yeah, I feel feel what has influenced us into thinking that they've done more or made us feel that uh, it wasn't quite as short a list is because I feel like they're very present on TV. Like they Mm -hmm. write a lot for television, not even just, let's say, Rogers the Musical or Smash as we've talked about, but I feel like Mark Shaman's always working on the Oscars and award shows and stuff and SNL. Exactly. So they're, they're very visible as writers, Mm -hmm. whereas, um, other composers and who people who write musicals are not as much. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I when when it came down to it, their list of Broadway shows is at three right now. Mm-hmm. There is a fourth in the works. Right. It is meant to, I think, drop fall twenty twenty two, which is some like it hot. Um, but there's no actual confirmation. There's a couple like workshops happening as we yeah. speak. Um, we'll talk more about that when we get to the end of their uh, career. But uh, to take it way back to the beginning, these two met at Marie's Crisis, which is amazing to me. Mark Shaman was 16 years old, not even allowed to be in the bar, <laughs> but was playing piano, which is very Jimmy from Smash, I feel. You know, like wow. hearing, even though that was like Joe Iconis written music, but I just feel they were, you know, executive producers of that show. Sure. It's kind of their life story. And Scott was called, he was working at the duplex down the street and was like, you got to hear this guy play piano. And he heard him play. And then I feel like that was the beginning of a beautiful friendship, a beautiful relationship mm-hmm. professionally and romantically at the time. They're not still together, but um, they they work so well together. And as you said, you know, Mark 
does the composing of the music. They both write the lyrics, but I think it really is like a perfect marriage of they could not do this without each other. I think stylistically, it seems that they're a really great match. Um, Mm -hmm. As we get into it, we'll see that kind of each of them kind of each of the musicals they've written takes place around a very similar time period and they have no problem in getting into the music of that time period. So it seems like they both were very interested in writing similar things and have been able to collaborate quite successfully on like that specific genre. Time period one thing, but also the style of music, I feel like they kind of were boxed into the musical comedy for a while. Um, I would say catch me if you can maybe not so much comedy more drama than the others on their list but i i feel like and i gotta be honest i have not seen catch me if you can the movie it's it's been on my list for a long time but the way that they structured that musical made it quite light even though it's a kind of serious story structuring it as a variety show Mm -hmm. Um, made it so that it wasn't so serious that it was kind Mm -hmm. of tongue-in-cheek the whole time Mm -hmm. so i i think they 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 balance the serious subjects and all of these i think have a slightly serious subject in on one sense but then on the other hand kind of cut with comedy or kind of a different uh, approach to it so yeah why don't we start from the beginning yeah Let's start at the top. Their first show, Hairspray, um, 2002 on Broadway, won eight Tony Awards, nominated for 13, won Best Musical, Best Original Score, Best Direction, Best Book, Best Performance by an Actor in a Leading Role, Best Performance by an Actress in a Leading Role, Best Performance by a Featured Actor in a Musical, and that's it. Um, Obviously, their most successful Broadway Mm -hmm. um, musical uh, inspired by the movie, um, the John Waters movie that starred Ricky Lake. And then, you know, of 2007 remake fame, Hairspray, <laughs> the one that I think we all know and love. And I have actually two props for this. Well, bring it up. I bring went it up. into my basement because I knew that they existed. Look at these memorabilia. Wow. Okay. Well, this is this is video only content right here. It is. So video let me describe only what content. we have. Let me describe what we have for you. We have mm-hmm. a. Is it a Barbie? These are Barbies, or are they off brand? I don't think they're like off-brand? Mattel. They're okay, off so brand. Yeah. They're like dolls. Um, yeah. One is obviously Tracy Turnblad in the style in of her, Mickey Blonsky. In, in her, her Welcome to the Sixties. Of course, the little pink outfit. like mock neck. Yeah. And then the other one is Ladies Choice himself, Link Larkin, <laughs> styled as you know Zac Efron with his little microphone. Um, well, I never, do have I obviously the full set in my basement. Um, the full set, including like John Travolta, like Britney Snow, There's another more. Tracy, another Link. But like, can we just talk about how much this actually looks like Zach? It does look like him. Facially, they got him. This so doll cute. got him. And then another prop that when I was cleaning my room the 2008 hairspray ticket when wow. i saw it on stage in mervish this is like i haven't pulled this out in years because why would i so yeah i do i do remember so if as you may know me and tara met working at a summer camp and we put yeah. on a very famous all-white production of hairspray and <laughs> we're sorry um Which, before you continue i would like to announce that in 2020 it was decided, which 2020 was way too late for this to happen, Mm. but Mark Shaman and Scott Whitman, along with the licensing organization, um, closed a casting loophole that previously allowed non-diverse productions of Hairspray to go on, a.k.a. our production. I mean, we didn't pay for licensing. This was a very... 
I ripped off a script from an other script that I already had. Um, this is a very but budget production. You cannot do hairspray with an all white no. cast anymore. This is twenty years too late, but I'm happy that it's in place. As as you shouldn't be able to. No, I I yeah, I think this was a huge problem with uh, places choosing to do hairspray, including the summer camp that we worked at, what not having the cast to be able to do it. But why I brought it up is because I remember you had the giant hairspray can. It's still in the basement. <laughs> and br- it was brought. I don't know. I remember going to your house like between camp and it the show and like, getting the it. It was a prop set. Yeah. And we like put it out front. If anyone of me. remembers the good old days of movie theater going when they had gigantic cutouts, this they still was a do, giant. I think. And not as much. There would not, not be a hairspray bottle. It was a giant hairspray bottle with all of the cast from the movie. And I'm pretty sure my dad went to the theater and was like, can I have this? And they were they were going to throw it out. So oh. they gave it to us. And then we ended up using it as a prop. It's great. It's a giant hairspray <laughs> bottle. Um, so I think it's safe to say that like you and I, both fans of the music of hairspray, I think it is obviously like there's not many shows on their roster but it is the best of their broadway i would say oh absolutely absolutely i think structurally from beginning to end um works the best for sure it was the first i mean it was the first one of theirs i heard it came out in 2002 i would have been nine nine ish um and i remember i think the first song i ever heard from it was welcome to the 60s actually Uh, I remember my dance studio, uh, maybe a few years later, they had a dance to Welcome to the 60s. The younger kids did it. It was very cute. They were in like little like pink things with like leggings. Mm-hmm. And I was immediately obsessed with that song and I loved it. And then, you know, who hasn't heard You Can't Stop the Beat? That is a classic. You can't stop the beat. I think it is in the vein of like classic uh, finales from musicals. And yeah. I think it still inspires finales and musicals like Book of Mormon. Their finale is a, a You Can't Stop the Be ripoff. The underscoring of the Book of Mormon finale is like the reverse order. If you were to the like, dun, 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 dun. it's the <laughs> reverse of that for Book of mm. Mormon. So, yes, you're 100 percent right. But I think it was like obviously intentional. Oh, and- sure. I we talked about Book of Mormon before and the way it, the way it's structured. Yeah, and also I was reading that Mark Shaman worked with um, Matt Stone, Matt. Trey Parker for the Blame Canada song for that South oh, really? Park episode. So they like kind of have a connection. So I'm sure it was like, hey, Mark, we're doing this. What are your thoughts? And he was probably like, I love it. But mm-hmm. um, I think what this show specifically speaks to is what you were saying of like the musical style that they sort of kept their self, themselves into – I would say like still to this day through their career, it is like, I don't want to say period, but it is kind of like time period of mm-hmm. 60s, 70s and that big orchestra 
and lots the of brass, horns. Yeah, the really, brass section. It's really good. Like, you don't hear brass like this anymore. And I, I feel like I say this literally every single time no. we hear a song with brass. I'm like, why don't we have more brass? Because it's amazing. The expensive orchestra that I'm sure was in the pit for this show that they're just 100%. there's just not the budget for anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's also super interesting with Hairspray specifically because this did come out in 2002, which was a post 9-11 musical to come out Mm -hmm. and I listened to um, a podcast with Mark Shaman and he was saying that you know people were craving that joy and that fun and being able to sit in a theater and you know right out of the gate with Good Morning Baltimore which is that heavy drum Mm -hmm. beat and the big brass I think it's like saxophone I'm not sure it's just like so bright and lively and helps you I don't know it's like a really good time when you're listening to that cast recording that's a wonderful opening number. I mean, we've talked about this as an opening number, but Good Morning Baltimore just establishes the world, establishes our main character of Tracy. You get to meet all the quirky characters in her life. And tonally, because, you know, it's based on that John Waters movie, it's a little, like, left of center. And I think just that that opening number captures exactly how quirky and fun this whole musical is going to be. Good morning, Baltimore. And I even love, you know, if we're talking about Hairspray, we obviously have um, the central conflict, the storyline is uh, about racism. And so the way that they have this separate style for Mm -hmm. the black characters to sing that sounds different and sounds more authentic um, to them than the songs obviously written for um, the white characters who are performing most of the time. And I love that they... They were able to like capture both sounds and contrast them while still being like time period appropriate. I think it's a really successful, successful musical. Yeah, I think it's interesting. I was reading an article on Playbill of what comes first, which I think is a question that we have a lot. Is it the music or the lyrics? And in this case, because this is a partnership, these two work together all the time. um, Mm. Mark Shaman said that first we talk about the song and that the title needs to have a hook and or the musically we need a hook in the song so he said he'll go to the piano and he'll start to play and he'll think of like dummy lyrics on the spot just to like get sure. i guess the creative juices flowing and then scott will be will will jump in and start to workshop it and he said that scott was responsible for all of the titles on hairspray which i thought was mm. fun and mm-hmm. then um he said that the first song has to be he said that the first song had to be good morning baltimore and then as soon as they started with that they just sort of like carved their way through the entire score which i thought was mm. interesting because i guess in in this show specifically you do need to set that you're pl- you're you are taking place in baltimore so it would make sense to start with that but i wouldn't think that the first song you start with is the very first song of the show yeah usually you know you hear so much about musicals not being written linearly and mm-hmm. i don't know if the rest of it was written linearly but it sounds like good morning baltimore was the key to like unlocking this show like it set the tone the way it does for the audience it set the tone for them as writers to kind of spread out and write the rest of this show and find out where they were going it's also interesting because you know the movie came out i think the 80s the original movie 1988 yeah so 1988 broadway 2002 um 
movie uh, adaptation 2007, and now there's like mm-hmm. it's Hairspray's been playing off and on, I guess, like regionally for the oh, last I'm sure 20 it's years. Heavily, I know it's heavily a heavily licensed show. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it's just it has great name recognition. You know, audiences know they're in for a good time when they see Hairspray. Yeah. Um, on the marquee, so it and it's has a huge cast, men and women. I it's. If you have the cast for it, I think it's a wonderful, wonderful show. It's also, I mean, this is the the bad side of it, but, you know, this storyline is as timely as it was when it first came Absolutely. out. Absolutely. Uh, so, maybe even more. Maybe even yeah. more. It has, um, it has been a modern storyline from the moment the movie came out in 1988 until now. It will never not be relevant. Yeah. In terms of music, um, do you have a favorite Hairspray, like, Broadway song versus movie song? Um, wow, a favorite Hairspray Broadway song. I think my favorite is Without Love. Um, it's just, it's so funny. It's, it's so this, like, good. romantic ballad, but it's hilarious. And, again, like, we talk about the tone. It's the perfect, like, tonally perfect, this mm-hmm. song. Yeah. Um, just the lyrics crack me up every time. Trace, I want to kiss you. But then I can't wait for parole. Cause without love. Life is like a prom that won't invite us. Without love. It's like getting my big break and laryngitis. Without love. Life's a 40 mile when you can't buy it. Without love. Life is like my mother on a diet. Yeah. No, I what agree. I is love that your favorite song love. too? Is that no? I think my favorite Broadway one is "Mama mm. and Big Girl Now," which was cut mm. for cut the for 2007 the movie, movie. Um, but it did show up again in Hairspray Live, which makes sense because that was more of like an adaptation Adapted from, from the, the Broadway. Um, but if we're talking about like favorite written for the movie, obviously "Ladies' Choice." I mean, okay, interesting. Because if we're talking <laughs> about favorite written for the movie, I would go "New Girl in Town." Hey, look out for that woman, man. I love that <laughs> look song. Out, look out, look out. And then when so it transitions that was actually to the different... supposed to be in in the Broadway. Oh yeah, um, but then like the was cut for. Yeah, it was it was cut. It was originally composed for the musical, but then it was uh, deemed unnecessary and discarded sure. from the musical. And then I guess there was a better way to show it off in the movie, where it starts with like Amber and Co singing, and then we get to like, are they called the Dynamos? I think they were called the Dynamos. Dynamites? Are Dynamites. Dynamites? I think Dynamos, Dynamos is, is Mamma Mia. Mia. <laughs> Never forget. Dynamites. Which are supposed to be, like, they're supposed to represent the Supremes, I want to say. Because it's that sort of time yes. period. Mm-hmm. Um, but, I mean, I I just remember seeing that 2007 movie and falling in love with the movie in general. But also, you know, we had just been exposed to Zac Efron for the first time via High School Musical. And then What a time this, for us. What a time for us. And it's so funny because um, Zach obviously did not sing in the first High School Musical. And then here he is with this, like, one, It Takes Two, which already existed, but two, mm-hmm. Ladies' Choice. And you're like, okay, Zach, I hear you. He was, he was so handsome in this movie. Oh, hey, little girl, do my bleed. Come on, the laptop, guaranteed. One day, baby, we'll find the name you make three. It's the Ladies' Choice. I'm the Ladies' Choice. The ladies' choice. I'm the ladies' choice, choice, choice. I'm the ladies' choice. I think 
think they got him a lot of voice lessons for the movie, and then he was able to take the new skills he learned and two, bless two us and with three. High School Musical two and three. Yes. <laughs> exactly. um, other other fantastic songs from the musical for me, Run and Tell That. Oh, so so, so good. good. And but um, lyrically that one, but also instrumentally, mm-hmm. amazing. I, I love it. And also, um, The Legend of Miss Baltimore Crabs, I think, is so, so fun. It's such mm-hmm. a good, like, villain song. Mm-hmm. Ooh, maybe we should talk about villain songs one time. Oh, yeah. That is, that's, that's a good one. Like a, okay. Write that down. Make a right. note. Make a note. <laughs> um, I would also say that the song written for the credits, um, Come So Far, I love oh, in the movie? that song. It is great. I agree. I. It's a little bit of a cheesy message, but... It's fine. It hits. It hits. Yeah. And the version for the movie was like Queen Latifah, Nikki Blonsky, and mm-hmm. others. But the version for Hairspray Live was like Jennifer Hudson and Ariana Grande. Come on. Amazing. <laughs> Amazing. about the movie I was listening to the movie soundtrack the other day and you you can't stop the beat which is a bit of a different orchestration than the Broadway it ends on the notes of Good Morning Baltimore before it completely Mm. wraps up the song and I love that it just ties the whole storyline together I feel like this was such a well thought out score from beginning to end because everything flows so well it's wonderful yeah. It's great. And that movie will always be kind of special to us, filmed in Toronto. Yeah. Um, so, you know, you can kind of spot spot our city around. I if can't you believe want to. I wasn't like out on the streets looking for Zach Efron. But we I guess young. we were too we weren't like introduced to him that much yet. No. It was like like immediately after high school musical. Yeah. And I'll also say I was like dancing at the time, so a lot of like students and former students from my dance studio are just in the movie and the ensemble oh, a lot and like you can't stop the beat and stuff so it was like really exciting to watch in 2007 I'm like 13 or 14 years old yeah and getting to watch like the senior dancers that I had looked up to like in the background of the movie yeah. dancing like having fun and I was like oh wow like this is what you could do not me but this is what <laughs> <laughs> um it was like a really exciting exciting thing to see you know another song that just I I thought of um really fun I can hear the bells. It's just like so funny. The use of so- bells specifically is so smart. Yeah. I love yeah. it. No, um, I I I honestly don't think there's a dud in this cast recording. If I had to pick one dud. Yeah. Wow, okay. This is hard now. Maybe I have two duds. But these are not because they're bad. It's just because they're like skips on the cast recording. You know what I oh, mean? Oh, is it like the the Wilbur songs? I was going to say, you're timeless to me. An absolute. Okay, but in the movie, it's so funny. It's, it is really sweet, but it's it's a skip. Mm-hmm. And also, I would skip the big dollhouse every time. Oh, okay. But the big dollhouse is not in the movie. So they it's did not in skip the it for the movie. They did. They were like, <laughs> really, we agree. It is a skip. Yeah, yeah, uh, I agree. But it's it's one of those things that you know, like, I feel like every leading man on Broadway has played a Link Larkin at some point in their life. Um, We Mm -hmm. were talking about this like before because we were watching clips. You know, Matthew Morrison 
starred as Link Larkin. Um, He's unrecognizable to me in, okay, but in like, this also, 2002 bootleg we were watching. Can we talk about the fact that Glee never did Hairspray? Why? They didn't have a diverse enough cast. I, mean, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, that's correct. But also, like, you would think Matthew Morrison originating the role right of there. Link, you would bring Glee, in a Hairspray song. Glee, if they wanted to do a Matthew Morrison role, they should have done Light in the Piazza, and I will stand by that. <laughs> Just him singing yeah. in a town. Just be like, wow, I heard about this this musical. I, I'm going to sing a song from it. And then just, like, belt. Um, um, I can't remember yeah, that's what great. I mean, the link that I'll never forget is Nick Jonas at the Hollywood Bowl mm. doing it with uh, Marissa Jarrett Winoker, which was, like, the age difference a little bizarre <laughs> at that point because I think Nick was, like, 19. Um, what movie did I just see Marissa Jarrett Winoker in? Is it the... It was on Netflix. The one with Sophia Carson. Was she in the dance movie with Sophia Carson? She was the judge. Wow. And then movie, and then she movie. like stole her friend's shoes. What was that movie called again? Feel the Beat? Something I think like so. That? I watched this movie early pandemic days and told you to watch it. And then you only watched it like three weeks ago. <laughs> okay. Not to sound really cool, but I watch movies with my parents sometimes. <laughs> and someone were just scrolling. Um, and you landed unpa- on that? We land, we're, we're trying to like decide things to watch. I'm like, okay, what about this? We, we like to watch a nice, safe rom-com. That's the kind of movie that we're going for. Like a for. step above Hallmark. No, we watch a lot of Hallmark for the most I part, know. honestly. But, like um, but Netflix, then, it's a step above that. Is, is it though? I know. Uh, sometimes it's a step below. <laughs> sometimes it's a step below. Um, but yeah, we watched Feel the Beat. Uh, she might have so been that in that. Happened. I think you're right. It I was think a long she was like a judge as herself, as herself. Amazing. Um, also on Big Brother, Celebrity Big Brother. So you know, winner, the winner. Yeah. Um, okay. Dancing with the stars. Many things. Many things. Yes. Okay. Let's go on to their next Broadway show. We are jumping many years now, from 2002 to 2011, for when was this? No, it wasn't Aaron's Broadway debut because Next to Normal. But Aaron never looked better. On well, stage. he'd done Wicked at that point. That's Aaron true. Had done Hairspray at this point. If he'd done the, Next to Normal. This was the, the golden era of Aaron Tveit, and then he left Broadway. So handsome. Oh my um, god. Cutest. This was his like big leading role. This was yes. his carrying a show for the first time. We are talking about can. Catch Me If You Can, which was the adaptation from the Steven Spielberg, Leonardo DiCaprio, Catch Me If You Can. And I said off um, mic that, you know, when you're looking for a Leonardo DiCaprio type, obviously Aaron Tveit. I agree. Aaron, I think facially does have a bit of Leo. Also an energy. Mm. Um, And not quite the same, but Leo was nominated for many Oscars and just won one a few years ago. And Aaron was snubbed for many Tonys and just won one this past year. So we have that like kind of awards trajectory Although as well. Aaron and Leo, like, well, Aaron was not nominated against anybody where Leo was always nominated against people. It's fine. A win is a win. Um, a, win a win is a win. Yeah. So I... As you said, um, I've also never seen the Catch Me If You Can uh, movie. It is on my list as well. And I've heard that it's amazing. But mm. um, I think, I I don't know why this was musicalized. Like, I don't know why it was, but it so was. I was watching um, a couple of old Theater Talk episodes on YouTube. Mm-hmm. And they were in meetings to adapt something else. I'm forgetting what it was. But they said they saw a poster or for or the cover of Catch Me If You Can, and the way that they had, like, the line of flight attendants on it, 
said it reminded them of a kick line. Mm. And that kind of was the unlocking moment where they're like, oh, should we? This can be. They started to like see the picture of it in that moment. They had seen the movie before, liked the movie, and kind of had the idea kicking around. But that was the moment where they said, okay, this is something here. And I'm much more interested in this than whatever our meeting was just about. And that's why they decided to adapt this next. Um, I think it's interesting when you listen to this score because it also sounds I like I want to I'm saying dated, but I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean it in mm-hmm. a good way of it sounds dated and there are many brass again, like a lot of brassy moments in in these uh, musicals that they work on. But for me, when I was listening to this cast recording and I know Smash came out the next year and I know that they were working on it during the time, but I was like, oh, my God, all I hear is bombshell. That is all I hear in this musical, which was a weird mind game that was happening. I think it's quite interesting because you have Hairspray, which takes place in the 60s, Catch Me If You Can, which takes place in the 60s, um, Bombshell, which was written for Smash, taking place in the 60s around that same time period. Then we're coming up on Some Like It Hot, again, similar time period. So it's clearly a, a style of music and they're not writing, let's say, modern music for that time period. They're going no. back to the time period and writing music to fit. Mm-hmm. the stories that they're writing. So they're clearly very comfortable in that style and are maybe drawn towards those kind of stories and drawn towards the visuals of the 60s as well and and the constraints that that brings. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I don't... I mean, maybe it's a coincidence, but I don't think it's a coincidence that all of these things that they've written are very much in a somewhat similar style of music. Mm-hmm. Um, Catch Me If You Can nominated for... Four Tony Awards. Norbert Leo Butts won for Best Leading Actor in a Musical, which is surprising to me because wouldn't Aaron's character be leading? I'd say they were both under lead, would be my guess. When we were watching, we just watched a video of the final bows, um, their mm. final performance on Broadway, and they came out together to take that final bow. They didn't, it wasn't Norbert first and then Aaron. Like they walked out together, bowed, and then Norbert took one, and then Aaron took one. So Aaron technically had the last bow, but they entered together. Right, together. So I think they were very much the co-leads of that story. Hmm. Um, because I think it's very much, you know, a Steven Spielberg movie based on a real um, person. But Spielberg is known for these kind of like father-son, like parental stories. And so even though this character wasn't his father, it very much has like a father-son dynamic. And their dynamic is at the center of this movie, not Frank Abagnale Jr. and the guy chasing him, but the kind of relationship right. that they had. So I, I think Norbert Leo Butts' character, and also, you know, he is absolutely a star. He's the best. Yeah. Um, watching him perform at the Tonys that year, just the energy that he's giving, the choreography, he just is performing amazingly. I was lucky to see Norbert Leo Butts in My Fair Lady a few years ago, um, and still giving like that exact same kind of high energy fully committed performance that he was giving here. I mean, another, we'll get to it, but fully committed performance, his performance for Heaven on Earth in Smash. Fully committing. But the music, again, very similar to that sort of era. And even Heaven on Earth, which was not a real musical, but had that sort of like period dated feel to it. Um, I will say, and I think we've said this on previous episodes, this cast recording to me is fine. The standout among standouts is Goodbye. That song, Absolutely. phenomenal. So good. So well-crafted. The the instrumental, so good. But also just the way that, I don't know, like 
the way that it's sung, I mean, Aaron is Aaron. He's phenomenal. We all know this. But the the key changes that happen, like everything that is going on instrumentally, I'm obsessed with. I'm tired of living on the stage. A life that's only on the page. The empty lies are in the past. I've tried before, but here's the last goodbye. really is a gorgeous gorgeous 11 o'clock number I it was the first thing I heard from Catch Me If You Can I knew of the movie um and I knew that Aaron was leaving next to normal to do this musical so that was kind of my what I what I knew and then I saw him sing goodbye on YouTube or something and I'm like this song is amazing and you know I listened to Life in Living Color, which is like, or like Live in Living Color, which is the opening, which kind of like sets up the variety show uh, mm-hmm. structure framing device that they have. Um, I listen to like Seven Wonders, which is really good. Yeah. I love Fly Fly Away. Yeah, now I want to see But if I'm going back to one song from this cast recording, it's goodbye. Mm -hmm. It's goodbye. And and we have. Like, that is the only one that I have downloaded on Mm -hmm. my phone. I I have the other ones elsewhere, but, like, not downloaded. Um, I think it's interesting to bring up the variety show framing device because they did talk about this in an interview of how their inspiration for that was the Ed Sullivan show, which also dated obviously so Mm -hmm. to to think of that inspiration and then put music to that as well as like the storyline it all feels very cohesive i would say Mm -hmm. um but yeah we've never seen catch me if you can movie or musical so no it's well it didn't it only ran for 170 performances on broadway it was on Um, my flops list right goodbye flops goodbye um so it didn't run for very long i Mm -hmm. i wouldn't like yeah, it was not a success. It, I think it was a, a flawed show. Um, but I think they I would think, agree, too, that it was a flawed show. Sure. But I think there are, like, special moments, and I think they were. It was there was something fun about it, like, something interesting about it, whereas we're going to talk about their next show, where I don't really think there's anything fun or interesting about it. Should we skip Smash and go straight to the next yeah, one? Yeah, no, we're, Smash is at the end. Smash is at the end. We, we will devote time to Smash. Smash okay, is at great. the end. <laughs> So we are jumping now to 2013, which is when this show made its West End debut because it did not come onto Broadway until 2017. And there was actually quite a few like structural changes to the show. Um, director change, change in director. Yeah, the set uh, set design was completely different. The songs, they didn't write anything specifically new, but they took things out of the West End one. They added more of the movie stuff in. And we are talking mm-hmm. about Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Um, right. Steph, why don't you give us your initial thoughts on this cast recording? So some of you may know that I procrastinate preparing for these episodes. And so <laughs> earlier today, I'm a busy girl. Okay, I'm a busy girl. 
Earlier today, I'm like, well, let me listen to the Charlie and the Chocolate Factory cast recording for the first time in my life. It was also the last time in my life. I hated it so much. Oh my God. It was so bad for me. It was so painful. I saw this musical on stage. It was painful. Not by choice. Actually, like, not by choice. tea, gossip. So a lot of time when you start a podcast, when people start a go- podcast, they will record or try and do practice episodes. Oh my God, before... yes. Wow. I can't, I forgot about this completely. Yeah, you know, you forget. People, they'll, uh, I've heard of other podcasting, they'll do practice episodes before you start. And our very first po- practice episode was, because I didn't get to see it, was me asking you and us talking about the Charlie the Chocolate Factory musical when it was here in Toronto on tour. Did we record that? I think we did, but just on an iPhone, maybe. Amazing. We were driving somewhere. We were oh God, we were straight up actually driving. That. We were like going oh, on a road trip. I feel. We, I feel like we were driving to see Hamilton. I feel like we were driving. To You're see right. Hamilton. We probably were. Wow. Wow. What a good memory. Yeah. Okay. And I'm sure my here. I'm sure my thoughts then were the same as they are. Yeah. Right now. It wasn't. We didn't love it. I'm sure I have my notes for it somewhere. That's amazing. Um, but yeah, so our first ever practice episode was about this musical. Um, yeah, I really did not enjoy this cast recording at all. The best stuff on it was the stuff from that, um, original, uh, 1970s movie. Um, and I would not recommend, you don't need to listen to it. So I can't even remember what, I guess three or four years ago is when it was here. Cause that's when we yeah. would have been doing the test podcast stuff. Um, 2017, it, it came on tour, uh, for Mervish and, I remember seeing the posters up um, in New York that it was going to Broadway. And I had been to New York like a few times, like never on my list of a show to see. No. Even though like Christian Borle starred, randomly shaved his head for this. We don't know why. Right. Same um, season as Falsettos, right? It was the same season yeah. as Falsettos. Which I think he left early to do this. I don't think he left early. Falsettos was the limited run, limited. right? It ended okay. in January. Yeah. So then so he just... he had Directly the in though, basically. Yeah. Um, and I mean adapting a beloved movie it's like hit or miss I would say it's always hit or miss but especially when you think I think it's supposed to be based on the on the original Roald Dahl book Um, which I think clearly the Johnny Depp version of the movie is also supposed to be more based on the Roald Dahl book than the original movie but Mm -hmm. I get my only comparison to this is because it's two Roald Dahl shows is Matilda and which is great Matilda is a far better show. And even still, like, we didn't love Matilda. I think it's good, but I don't think it's, like, the greatest musical of all time. Whereas it has this... more It has more special moments, Matilda. There are really special things about Matilda. And again, this I didn't see this. straight up bad. There's nothing, there's nothing special bad. about this. And it's so interesting because I was watching, I think it was a Broadway.com interview with Shaman and Whitman, and they were talking about the score and talking about how they had to change things from the West End, which... We'll say very successful in the West End, ran for four years, but they kind of like they have the quirky. There's a different things. taste. There's a different taste there and here. And not that it's better or worse. Viva Forever and Charlie and the Chocolate Factory hit. <laughs> I don't know if Viva Forever hit, but it was there. Um, there's a different taste level yeah. here and there. And the taste or and the what they value in art in the UK is just a little different. Weird. <laughs> and also, even if the music wasn't great there, 
they had an insane, crazy set at Drury Lane. Oh, the Drury Lane Theater, uh, Scott Whitman said, was like triple any size of the Broadway theaters yeah. out there in the ever. So and they yeah, they had so much a space set there to, to fill the space. But then when they brought it to Broadway, it was a it's a very minimal set. So there's nothing to distract you from this music that is, in my opinion, just bad. Yeah, I mean, as you said... Not even bad, just like boring. No, it's bad. It's bad. Um, I 100% agree that the best stuff, which is unfortunate, is, you know, I got a golden ticket, um, the Candyman can, and Pure Imagination. That is the best stuff. If we are going to shout out, like, one song that is okay from Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, I would say it is um, View From Here, which is the song that Willie sings to Charlie in the glass elevator after the whole, like, experiment is done. That's why I brought you to see the view from here So you could see the straits Magellan sailed the battlefields where good prevailed the pyramids St. Peter's Dome the tiny house that you call it's nice. I was going to shout out a different song, but go ahead. Go oh, on. oh my God. We have two, two different we, songs. We have picked out two songs from this musical that is bad. Um, okay. Yeah, I think, it's, I think it's nice. I think Christian Borle sounds nice on it. And I think sure. seeing it on stage, they did do some cool sort of stage tricks with the glass elevator. I saw, you know who I saw? Um, Noah Weisberg, who's I in your voice fame. <laughs> yes. I remember talking about this. He was Willie, yeah. Um, the song I would shout out is the Act One finale. As I was listening to it, I was like, this is the Act One finale. Um, it's Must Be Believed to Be Seen, uh-huh. sung by Christian Borel, Willy Wonka, and company. And I was like, okay, this is nice. I don't hate this one. That this world I've conceived, world I've conceived see all I've achieved, achieved must be believed. Come in. Do you remember at the beginning of the pandemic, there was like a Charlie and the Chocolate Factory song that went viral on TikTok and everyone was doing the like Veruca Daddy moment? No. I think it was like the hip hop song from this musical, but I can't remember what that song is. The Queen of Pop, maybe? What did sweet Veruca say? Daddy, buy me North Korea. When Veruca says, it's like a battle cry. And when Veruca says, well, I jelly for a spine. And if Veruca said, I have no recollection of this. I wouldn't have recognized it because I listened to this cast recording for the first time in my life today, one Um, hour before this recording. I will say the wildest moment on stage, which we did watch before we started recording, is the uh, Nutcracker Suite, Veruca's Nutcracker Suite, where she literally gets torn apart on stage by life-size squirrels. They rip a child lip from limb. I think they were played by adults, though, these children. All of them. Except for Charlie. Yes, which is similar to, I mean, not in the same way, but Matilda, like, the brother was played by an adult in Matilda, whereas the Matildas Mm. were children. Children. Um, But they had a big, like, children's ensemble in Matilda, whereas in Charlie and Chocolate Factory, it's, like, 
one child on stage. And but I think that adults. that was intentional because of like the dark, the violence, the straight up violence. <laughs> yeah, the straight up the violence. violence. Um, and and then uh, the other song that I was going to shout out in a bad way, which I think might be Shaman and Whitman's worst work, is <laughs> when Millie wet, met Oompa. Oh my God, watching this on stage and like the Oompa Oompa theme song that these guys sing, I... And the sound of their bliss, it went something like this. I don't even know what they were thinking. I, I actually don't even know what they were thinking because you think of you think of hairspray, you think of catch me if you can, you think of smash, and then this? Like how did this even happen? <laughs> it I don't know. This felt like a very commercial endeavor, the writing of this musical. Well, um, it didn't even sound like and maybe I don't know, but it didn't sound like they were like truly passionate about writing a Charlie and the Chocolate Factory musical. I mean, it's interesting to bring that up because, again, in an interview that I saw with them, they were, like, kind of given a timeline by Warner Brothers of when this needed to be done. So it was like, write your music, get it on stage, and send it on the road. So I kind of agree that it maybe felt rushed. And they were like, I guess we got to bang it out because Warner Brothers is paying us for this. So here you are. And I I was watching the theater talk um, when they were talking about the Drury Lane production because it had such a huge set they spent the entire tech time just figuring out the set and they changed nothing from when they got into the theater um, for tech and previews to opening night. Um, So they were happy to get to revisit it when it went to Broadway because they had all these things they would have wanted to change, but they were unable to because it, they just did not have the time there. And I'm like, okay, so you're sending out this kind of incomplete or like, Show like a workshop because, version. Yeah, you're not, you know, because they haven't been able to tweak it with that audience reaction. Um, so I was like, okay, so it wasn't, it wasn't exactly the show that they wanted on the West End. And then they had the opportunity to change it here, but they also had, you know, Warner Brothers in the studio telling them, okay, you need to put in these songs, you need to add this and... Yes, yeah, like more, like more of the original movie. So I, Pure Imagination was in the West End, but the other two songs were not. And Warner Brothers mm-hmm. was very much like, we want these in the Broadway sure. version. Which, again, I feel like very similar to what we talked about okay. on our last episode. Broadway is a business at the end of the day. And Absolutely. when you have big money like Warner Brothers saying, I want this in your musical, what are you supposed to say? No, like you can't. You have, to, you have to do it. So, yeah, not their best work. Um, yeah. I'll yeah. never listen to this again. No. I revisited it also and then remembered my initial thoughts to it. So. I liked I like the like um any of like the scoring, anytime it was like the Candyman like scoring like instrumental pieces. Sure, but that already existed. That <laughs> um we are moving on to a movie because this was um, a movie that they wrote original music for, but also a movie that Mark Shaman got to score, and that is Mary Poppins Returns. Um, I'm, like, ish familiar with this because I've seen the movie, but I'm also confident I fell asleep during the movie, but I know you like it, so... I So um, Mary Poppins, the original movie, is, like, one of my, if not my very favorite movie. It was a movie as a child that I put on on VHS, watched, rewound, started again, watched... Mm-hmm rewound like again and again and again over and over and over again so I knew it so 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 well and then I hadn't watched it in a long time when this new movie was coming out 
And I watched it again. And there are some parts of it that are still, I still think it's a wonderful movie. Absolutely magical. Um, but it is long. And when I watched, I saw Mary Poppins Returns in theaters. And I also felt slightly long. That's not a Mark Shaman and Scott Whitman no. uh, decision or choice or problem. Probably a Mark Platt decision and choice. You know, <laughs> there are people whose problem it was. But again, not Shaman and Whitman. I think they wrote some like really lovely music. I think it did pay tribute to the Sherman Brothers who wrote the original movie's music. The song that... Um, for me, like I is the one that I hum still is nowhere to go but up, which is right at the end where they're floating in the sky on the balloons. I used it. I was still teaching dance at the time and I used it for our final recital performance for the parents and the kids absolutely loved it and the parents loved it. They're like, oh, we just took the kids to watch this movie. I'm like, yeah, it's great. I watched it too. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and I thought it was like a really sweet song, but I don't think there's really anything that that memorable in this movie. I was going to say the the song that was nominated for the Oscar for Best Original Song was The Place uh, Where Lost Things Go, which I believe is like Emily Blunt's solo song um, in the movie. It was nominated for Best Original Score. They did not win anything for Mary Poppins Returns. But again, I was listening to uh, Mark Shaman on a podcast, and he said that so much of his musical DNA was built from the original Mary Poppins movie. So the fact that he was able to work on an adaptation was like a bucket list dream thing for him. And then, you know, to bring a partner like Scott Whitman over with him and get to share in in that together, I'm sure was very special for them. So I think the biggest thing for him, songs aside, was that this is a man who has scored many movies. We haven't even talked about the movies that he scored, but to be able to score um, a movie that is not a remake, but a sequel, if you will, to something that he was obsessed with as a child is like a really cool thing. So it is, it is for sure. Um, um, the kind of other one that went was popular was um, Triple Little Light Fantastic, which is, yes. you know, we, we haven't even mentioned Lin-Manuel Miranda starring in this no. movie, <laughs> um, which is the Lamplighter's big song, kind of the uh, step in time air. So when troubles are incessant, simply be more incandescent for your light comes with a lifetime guarantee as you triple light fantastic won't you triple light fantastic yeah the interesting thing about this movie is that I found it very much like kind of beat for beat following what Mary Poppins did so you had I don't know, the spoonful of sugar where I think kind of became the like, um, can you imagine that? Um, Triple Light Fantastic is like step in time. Um, there's, what's the song that Meryl Streep sings? There's also, it like a, is a parallel to the scene where the men are on the ceiling. Like yes. it very much follows the exact same uh, like map that the mm -hmm. first one did. And yeah. I wish it had kind of 
been different. Done its own thing a little bit. Yeah. I'm just to speak on movies in general, Mark Shaman did score like so many movies that I didn't even realize. I'm just on Mark Shaman's website right now. And mm. I would say the biggest ones are When Harry Met Sally, um, Misery, which I think is so interesting because he's done a lot of romantic comedies and Misery, the complete opposite of romantic <laughs> comedy. So the music obviously much, much darker than things that he would be used to. Um, some other ones, Sister Act, that's a really fun. Uh, One and two. Yes, one and two. Um, as I said in our Oscars episode, um, Mr. Saturday Night, which... Of course. Why aren't they doing the Broadway? I don't know, but they're not. Um, Sleepless in Seattle, uh, Hocus Pocus, George of the Jungle, Mr. Giant. So there's... Or sorry, My Giant, The Kid, like Hairspray, obviously. Adam's Family Values. Yep. These are... Um, and then the, I the think ones Mary- that interest me are like the rom-coms, like the one Harry Met Sally, yeah. the Sleepless in Seattle, because those are movies that... I love and like have watched and so getting I don't know I think that's it's interesting to hear but I think that that put him in that like I don't want to say romantic comedy because I wouldn't consider like musicals that way but I think that put him in that musical comedy box of all he can do is this and I don't know that he wanted that I don't know it's interesting to think of like the music obviously again hairspray musical comedy Charlie and Chocolate Factory dark musical comedy um catch me if you can like undertone musical comedy so mm-hmm. smash no not really bombshell is pretty well, drama you know smash i mean let's get into smash so the musical bombshell it is Marilyn's life is a tragic story but mm-hmm. they're still like can you say let's be bad is not a musical comedy number can you say national pastime? Is national not a pastime, I would say number? more than let's be bad. What about because she's something kinda... like public relations? Is that I not guess. kind of a musical comedy number? And there are obviously, I think, more serious moments in "quote unquote" bombshell the show that doesn't exist than yeah. in any of these other shows that we've talked about. But I do think there are they know how to do like a fun bombastic um, big dance party number that is funny and fun for the audience. Yeah, I mean, we have done two full episodes on Smash season one and season two. So to hear all of our thoughts on those, please go listen. But, and I mean this in the highest compliment possible, their Smash stuff, the best work. It is their best work. What we've talked about today, I when I hear Hairspray, I like it. I never seek it out. I sometimes will seek out like Goodbye or Fly Fly Away from Catch Me Can. We've discussed my thoughts on Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. I go back to Smash all, all the, the time. time. Since all it the came time. out, all the time. We are always listening to Smash. Like, always. And I think when that Smash concert came out in 2020, well, like, re-aired in 2020, and then we heard the announcement of the musical Smash being mm. worked on, it was like, okay, but where's Bombshell? Like, we I want Bombshell. Bombshell. That music, mm-hmm. which I think, again, speaks very much to the dated period, old school style. Similar times period as these other shows. That is their best work. Let Me Be Your Star, their best work. Like, that is a fantastic that song. song. Yeah. So um, I do think, and I, again, mean this with, like, the highest compliment, that, that though, the music from Smash is so well thought out to the storyline that they were creating with Bombshell. But it is interesting when we think about it, like Bombshell at the state that it 
is currently in at the end of season two with Smash could never be on stage because how could anybody sing all of those songs in one musical? No, it's like what I was saying before we we hopped on. The freedom that they had in writing Bombshell in that it didn't actually have to work as a show, I think really helped them in writing these these songs and this music. It's great, but they didn't have to worry about, okay, this song next to this song, will the costume change fit in? Will the set change work? True, we never even thought about costume changes. (laughs) Can can someone vocally sing this? Is do these songs flow together from one to the next properly? Are we telling a full cohesive story or is it just like random story beat, random story beat, random story beat? Right. It it never it we we just don't know that. Like the closest we have is that concert version and even that is not quite complete. No. So it the the freedom that they had in writing this musical is interesting when we think about we think it's kind of some of their best, best stuff. But it's it's not complete. I know it's interesting too because I think again of season two. This this is has nothing really to do with Shaman and Whitman. But you know we've talked about how Pasek and Paul also worked on season two of Smash. I think that those songs are some of their best work. So it is. I think when you are given the opportunity to write one offs per episode, mm. there is so much creative freedom that you don't have to box yourself into, will this fit in a two-hour show with an intermission? The answer is mm-hmm. no, this won't fit into Bombshell, but it works in the format of TV. And I think being able to, as you said, like be able to cre- creatively do that and know that it wasn't going anywhere helped. Um, mm-hmm. I also think back to the pilot of Smash, which, or I guess the unaired pilot of Smash, um, mm-hmm. I feel the like Showtime that was a, pilot. Yeah, that was a very different show. They were signed on for that one as well. So I am interested to know what the music was like for for that. I, I think the music was probably quite similar. Maybe a little raunchier would be my guess because yeah. it was on Showtime and it, they they had the opportunity to be a bit more explicit. Maybe though, at sure. the end of the day, they were writing a show for Broadway that they wanted to appeal to the masses, mm-hmm. like in the conceit of the show. So I can't imagine it being like. The music itself yeah. being that crazy, even if the scenes around it were a bit much. Yeah. Um, so, again, I know that we've talked a lot about music on our Smash episodes, but season one, season two, give me your faves. Well, if we're talking about the Shaman and Women stuff, my yes. favorite song from the musical Bombshell is Don't Forget Me. But there are some born to shine who can It's basically Let Me Be Your Star, but the like bombast of Don't Forget Me is my favorite part. And Talk about two, big brass. Oh my God. That's just like, that underscoring. Gorgeous. Amazing. And then um, my favorite song from season two of Smash from Bombshell is They Just Keep Moving the Line. Mm-hmm. So again, occupies kind of a similar place vocally, storyline wise, but it just hits. It hits. Keep moving the line. Please give me 
What about um, you, Tara? Season one, I is it even in Bombshell? But like, let me be your star is the one. It is the only one. Yeah, it's opening. Does it it's open? Number. It's the I'm, first song. Imagine that as an opening number of a musical. Fade in on a girl. <laughs> doing the voices of the Norma Jean like in the background yes the shadow Norma the shadow selves yeah um I mean I could talk about that song all day I think I have talked about that song all day um it is it it is like their best work and then for me season two um cut print moving on I love it so much and I mean we talked about in our Oscars episode but um I can't let go is just like it's such a great, it's a well-written song. It's just such a well-written song. I can't let go. Need it to remind me. I can't let go. Just repeat the past. And though your arms are saying yes, I feel my heart keeps saying yes. so funny how we've picked we've named basically six like ballads not ballads but yeah solo slow to maybe mid-tempo just like sorry what about your favorite michael swift song you're right on lexington and 52nd street does slap um (laughs) also a ballad also a ballad i know look there are other songs there are other fun things history that's slow too history's made nice slow um 20th century, 20th fox, century mambo. fox mambo 20th century fox mambo that's really fun that's great such a production num- number but i don't go back and listen to that the way i go back and listen to they just keep moving the line no um i think it's important to talk about uh the fact that they have only written for adaptations um yes why why right <laughs> so the next thing that they're doing is some like it hot which um workshops we're thinking next season on broadway we will see also starring christian borrell and i believe jay harrison gee as kind yes. of our two leads um and it's drawing parallels to you know a tootsie and mrs doubtfire because it has a similar conceit Story. in the beginning in the at the, the center way of it. the way that um a man in a dress was the only funny thing in this time period i'll never understand it's it's very interesting that, that this is a well that was had has been gone too many times before, and that Broadway just can't it just can't let go. I will it say can't though, let go. <laughs> let go. Yeah. So something like it hot based on the 1959 movie, but Mar- uh, Matthew Lopez of The Inheritance is writing this script. So yes, I saw that. Do we uh, trust uh, it more? I don't know. Uh, look, I think Matthew Lopez is very talented. Um, a queer man writing this this musical, great. Um, a non-binary person in one of the starring roles in the workshops, as far as we know, great. Uh, Mark Shaman, Scott Whitman, obviously both gay men writing this this music, fantastic. It's just if, and we don't know what the script changes are. 
but the source material very much the joke is isn't it funny when a man pretends to be a woman isn't that hilarious which and it's just not funny it's not well and i want to bring in what we were talking about off the air which is hairspray because obviously <clears throat> harvey fire's scene got like his biggest shot with hairspray playing edna but we discussed like, performing you know he's obviously an amazing writer but of course as a, as a performer but we discussed that edna isn't meant to be a man in a dress edna is a woman who is played by men and i do want to point out that in the west end for the 2021 revival drag queen stepped into that role which i think is fantastic mm-hmm. and a different way to to elevate that character but we did discuss with like Doubtfire and Tootsie and Matilda that there is part of still in unfortunately Broadway life that part of the gimmick is that there is a man playing a woman and I, I just don't I just don't get it. Yeah, I don't I'm very I don't know, I'm very hesitant about this. And it is another adaptation for them, um, which is kinda how we got here, but yeah, Hairspray, I think, is the one in this kind of genre where it, the joke is not that Edna's played by a man. That is just the character. That is just what what they've chosen. Mm-hmm. Um, and some like it hot. We haven't seen it yet. But I'm very, very hesitant. And I'm, like, very skeptical about how they're going to handle it. Because I don't think Tootsie or even really Doubtfire at this point have have handled it very well. Also for Some Like It Hot, choreographed by Casey Nicola. So, oh, you know. Oh, we love that. There's never, like, this I'll is the thing, this that. is the thing. Like, what can we, I mean, and rightfully so, can complain about the shows being created in general, but then you look at the creative team and you're like. These are, they're all okay. talented people, but I wish they were using their skills talents and elsewhere. talents for something different. I agree. Um, um, yeah, it's true. But yeah, the the projected the rumor is that it is part will be part of next season on Broadway because we should mention the Tony Awards have set a date. We have that confirmation now. Yes, our first recording since the Tony Awards set a date. Yeah, so the Tonys Wait, are happening on June twelfth, and the cutoff. We were basically right. We're right. Um, April twenty eighth is the cutoff. Mr. Saturn and I, mm-hmm. as of right now, is the I think final show, which is. Uh, 20, April 27th, 27th. and um, I believe the nominations are May 3rd, so... I think you're right. We are on episode release a month out from that, which feels crazy because, you know, it's been it's been a few years. <laughs> I can't believe we're back in the real-life schedule of an actual award season for Broadway. And I'm excited. It is, it is the 75th Tony Awards this year, so it's a big one. What are we going to do? What's the, and it's the 20 years since Hairspray, which we were talking about. I said, are they going to do something for the Tonys? And then we remembered that they did something last year for the Tonys. <laughs> they did something. They reunited the original cast. Yeah. I don't so, think I saw that. I was not watching that part at that point. Well, when you came over, we were trying to figure out how to stream it in Canada because, as you know, it was not the, streaming the in CBS Canada. The CBS All Access part, um, the first two hours were really difficult to get in Canada. And then they played um, Big Brother for an hour before we got right. into... Exactly. I feel like there's been so many parallels. When Marissa Jarrett went over and Big Brother, we're back around to Hairspray. I feel like Here it's been a whole full circle moment. So what a perfect wow. time to end our conversation on Mark Shaman and Scott Whitman. Um, again, we will continue to do these composer series um, 
as we continue to do this podcast, I do think it's interesting that this is our first one of a writing team. So we are definitely open to doing more writing teams. Obviously, Aaron's and Flaherty has been floated around. Yeah, we've been so about them for sure. we'll probably do them at some point. But um, yeah, if there are any composers or writing teams that you would like to hear in our composer series, let us know. But with that being said, it is now time for our obsession of the week. So my obsession is something that I actually saw on TikTok a few days ago. Um, it is an artist named Matt Copley, and he does these punk rock versions of Broadway songs. I love so the, these people that do these remixes on TikTok. It's so fun. Uh, it's so fun. So on Spotify, he's released a few, but the one I'm going to highlight is his version of Wait For It from Hamilton, obviously. Um, and I just really love to hear these songs in a new way. I think Wait mm-hmm. For It is an amazing song in Hamilton. Um, and so I think it, one, it really holds up to many different interpretations, mm-hmm. lyrically and like in terms of melody. Um, and it was just really, it's just really fun to hear other people's interpretations of these songs, like the Leslie Odom Jr. version, perfect, stunning. But getting to hear a rougher voice, because Burr is so smooth. Yeah. And getting to hear this kind of like rougher, maybe like slightly angstier version with all this guitar in the back. Um, it's just like really fun. I And I think when you hear covers of songs, I think it makes you listen to the lyrics in a different way. Or it makes you hear I them agree. for the first time. Mm-hmm. Like, like it was the first time all over again. So um, my shout out, check him out on Spotify, Matt Copley. He's also got a version of The Panto of the Opera, Defying Gravity, but I'm going to shout out, wait for it. Phantom punk, I feel, is crazy. <laughs> I feel like it works. I feel like it works. I mean, when we were given DJ Lord Weber, like, it works. <laughs> that was amazing. <laughs> that was amazing. That was for Phantom's reopening, and I'll never forget that. That street party with Countess Luann in the theater. <laughs> <laughs> and I meant to mention, because I had watched that, like, PBS Broadway's back special. They interviewed mm-hmm. Angela and Weber about that moment. Which <laughs> As they should. Fun. As they yes. should. And he was like, you know, it's been a time where we haven't been able to perform at all. So I figured, let's have a stream party. And he's like, my Abitha, alter ego is, next. A, is, a, is a DJ. Obsessed. When's the when's the DJ uh, Andrew Lloyd Webber musical coming out? Because we're ready yeah, for it. I mean, speaking of him for a second, I and speaking of the f- next season, I think his Cinderella might be part of the next season. Right. That's been a bit of a... A talk. Who is I? Who we follow on TikTok? Uh, her name is Theater is Life, I yes. believe. Yeah. She was talking about that, and I think I was in the comments, you know, thinking, "What theater we do we think it's going to be in?" You know, because there's a casting notice out. I think is what's prompted this casting so. notice out. Also, this is completely off track of obsessions, but while we're here, the K-pop sure. casting notice has been updated, so that also Ooh, feels fall. That's exciting. And if anyone is still keeping up with stars in the house like I am, um, Anika Larson said that Almost Famous is almost 
very likely coming to Broadway this summer. So... But with, like, a kind of new cast. Kind of new cast. And I don't think we have said since our way too early Tony nominations, Sing Street is alive, everybody. I know. We really (laughs) thought it was dead. They're doing it out of town somewhere. It's not going to... In the fall. Yes. In the fall. So So there's been kind of news. There's been movement. Um, There's been rumblings. Yeah. So... Back on track. Um, that's great. I want to hear the Phantom um, Punk yeah. uh, version because I love that. Um, my obsession, complete opposite of punk. But um, <laughs> I have been shuffling on my phone when I drive, which I never do. Like literally go into songs and press shuffle. And it's been a great experience because it's reminded me of songs that I loved years ago. And one of those is the song called Here For You, which is um, Jeremy Jordan singing with Jonathan Reed Gelt. I was obsessed with Jonathan Reed Gelt in high school. He writes a lot of musical theater songs um, that are just like sung by musical theater artists. And this song is stunning but brother there's hope cause I'll always be always sounds amazing and it reminded me of when he which we also just watched him singing um cut print moving on from smash i was like oh sometimes i miss just hearing like big belty jeremy jordan and this is one of those songs um he might be coming out with a punk band so (laughs) i have thoughts but none none we might discuss them (laughs) at some point but probably not because i agree not safe for the podcast but um i do love this song and yeah it's it's been fun to shuffle um music lately so hopefully more old songs that i was obsessed with in high school come back through (laughs) um in my in my car journeys into work but yeah that wraps up our episode um as i said if there are any composers or writing teams that you would like us to cover for our next composer series you can let us know and you can do that by following us on instagram and twitter at off to be way podcast with the number two And you can listen to us anywhere podcasts are found, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And you can even watch our beautiful faces on YouTube. Uh, Leave us a like and a comment there and subscribe. And we'll say our next episode, we are diving into Funny Girl, the movie. So if you also have not seen Funny Girl, watch it with us. And then you'll hear our thoughts on it um, in our next episode. Yeah, there's homework for next next episode. Watch (laughs) Funny Girl. If you, like us, have been sheltered your whole life and never exactly. seen it in preparation for an opening on Broadway. Exactly. Just in time for opening night. So we will see you guys next time. Bye. Bye.